Welcome everyone to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. Today, we're going to be talking with a panel of birth moms. We have Kelsey Vandervliet. She is a birth mom to a three-year-old boy and an open adoption. She was raised in the Midwest, but now lives in Los Angeles and is attending Southwestern Law School. And we have Katie Monroe. She placed her daughter 17 years ago. She has since then gone on to complete her master's degree in social work. And she has uh, primarily worked with expectant parents who are considering or making an adoption plan. She is now married and parenting three daughters. And we have Laura Blanco. She is the mom to a three and a half year old son that she placed for adoption. And they, she enjoys a very open adoption relationship. Welcome, Kelsey, Katie, and Laura to Creating a Family. We are so glad to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I think it would help for everybody to kind of get a lay of the land to understand the what your adoption looks like, you know, from an openness, contact, all that type standpoint. So, Laura, let's start with you. What does your son is... Uh, three and a half, and he was placed at birth. I guess everybody's children were uh, placed at birth. Uh, so tell us, what does your adoption look like? Mine is a very open adoption and very fortunate about, uh, or fortunate to have it. Um, originally, I was hoping that I'd get just two visits a year, and the uh, adoptive dad was like, well, how about every other month? And I said, sold. Um, <laughs> so I get to see him every other month. Um, he knows me as Bunny. Um, he knows me as his birth mom. Um, he's kind of shocked me the other day by saying, I was in your belly. And I'm like, yes, yes, you were. Wow. <laughs> um, we also share a text, uh, a group text and I get a couple of updates through that. But primarily my updates come with each visit. So it's a very, very awesome open adoption. Okay, good. Kelsey, what does your adoption look like? So it looked a little different. I used to live in Indianapolis and I moved out West about a year ago. So um, when I lived in close proximity, uh, we had probably five or six visits a year. And then we have, we text and we'll FaceTime and call maybe like once a month. And, but now I see him probably, I saw him once in the past year and then I will probably continue on that by seeing him once or twice, probably max. But it's nice. We have a close relationship. We talk, we still text and um, we'll FaceTime every once in a while. So it's gotten a little more few and far between over the past year. Um, But I also think that's because he's, he's three and it's just gotten less and less over the years. So, but it's still, it's still consistent and steady. Do you feel like that the uh, the the diminishing of contact is more from the adoptive parent standpoint or from your standpoint? Um, I think both. we both contributed to that because I moved, so I definitely did that part. <laughs> but yeah, I think I get less texts from them. I think they have another son, and I think that life gets busy, and you know that's just kind of reality. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Katie, tell us what your adoption looks like. You have had, uh, you've been, your daughter is 17. So uh, you have the the most, the the most longevity here. Yeah. So um, I placed 17 years ago. And at the time, I think that was considered an open adoption because I knew their information. We exchanged all of that. But I would say over the years, 
for modern, you know, sake, it's probably more semi in the fact that I haven't seen my daughter since the hospital. And so what it's looked like is that it's been, you know, pictures and updates. Um, in those early years, maybe until she was about four or five, it was pretty regular, probably three or four times a year. Also during those years, I would get lunch with the adoptive mom on a regular basis. Um, so I'd get those kinds of updates. And then through the years, it's kind of diminished. The, the, her adoptive mom actually friended me on Instagram. And so sometimes I will get an update that way or she'll send me a text. Um, but it's it's pretty sporadic now. There's no consistency um, in what the relationship kind of looks like um, or the updates look like. And from your standpoint, how is the the is the inconsistency or the unpredictability something that is you're fine with, or is it, does it make it more difficult for you? I think it's complicated because on one hand, it's it's something I accept because it's reality, but there are definitely times that I wish it was more consistent or was more predictable. I also placed in an era where there weren't contact agreements. It was kind of like a gentleman's handshake. Yeah, we agree to send you this, but there was no, there was no predictability to it. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's complicated. Okay. All right. And, and then out of, uh, since I, it does sound like I would almost, I think by the terminology we use now, it would be considered semi-open. So Katie, from your standpoint, what are your plans for, will you reach out to her? Are you going to wait for her to reach out to you? Is there an age that you feel is that you want to wait until she is whatever age? Or do you feel like you need to work through her adoptive parents? Or is this not anything that at this point you are interested in? Well, it's for sure something I'm thinking about because I think through her life, I've always anticipated like 18, oh, you're an adult when you're 18 and maybe something would happen then. I, I realize it may very well not. I think, and she just recently turned 17. So we're kind of in that year, would something happen? Could something happen? Could it be another 10 years? My plan is to um, reach out to her adoptive mom and send her um, a note and and just check in that way. Um, I, I don't plan to reach out to her without speaking to her adoptive parents first. Her mom. Okay. So we got uh, questions from adoptive parents and adoptees, and uh, they wanted to know your thoughts on um, a variety of things, one of which is options counseling. If you received it from a, an adoption agency, did you feel like there was a conflict of interest? Did you think it was adequate? So yeah, let me start with you, Kelsey. My options counseling was kind of not really a thing, I guess. I went to a pregnancy center at some point. I have a weird uh, experience with that. I, I went to a Planned Parenthood and then I went to a pregnancy center. And everyone, I think the only thing that people didn't offer to me was parenting. And it was, I felt very pulled in either direction. I didn't feel pulled by the pregnancy center. I only went there once and they were very supportive to me because I was very scared. And they really just walked me through talking to my mom about being pregnant because I hadn't told her. So they didn't really do options counseling. I just don't think I was at that stage with them. 
Um, mm-hmm. I went to them with like shock. And with Planned Parenthood, the route they wanted me to go was abortion. And then with everyone in my life, it was very much like adoption or go back to the clinic and get an abortion. And so I never felt like anyone, um, well, not not the right person, I guess, was telling me, um, was giving me unbiased options counseling. So when you connected with an agent or did you eventually connect with an agency? I went with a private attorney who does matching and stuff in Indiana. And no, I never received options counseling from, from them either. Okay. Let's see, Katie, what about you? Uh, 17 years ago, what was, who counseled you on what your options were, which might include adoption, but might include other things as well? Well, I think I had, I still do have a very supportive family. And so we sought counseling separate from an agency or an attorney or a pregnancy center went to just a therapist. And so I do believe she she did provide me with options counseling, but it was all on our own. It wasn't, you know, by the time I got to where I was going to make an adoption plan, then the agency that we worked with, it was very sided towards adoption and not of their fault. So I don't know that the attorney or the agency would have done that, but we did that as a family on our own. Mm-hmm. Okay, Laura, uh, what about you? Were you counseled by anyone? And if so, um, uh, what was that experience like? Was it fair? Was it unbiased? So my first, I guess, round of counseling came from family friends uh, the day I found out. And she kind of, like, we, we talked through all, you know, all three options. And she had experience, uh, the, the mom of the family, she had experience with another family friend of theirs who had um so such difficulty with infertility. And so she knew about the adoption world because it's something that they were exploring um, like a couple of years before I found out. And so she kind of gave me just a good framework about what to think about the three different options. Personally, I did not think abortion was going to be the best option for me and my, my child. So um, that was off the table immediately. And by the time I made it to my adoption agency, um, my heart was set on adoption. And so I kind of came about that on my own before I went to my agency. And my agency was was very good about being hands-off as far as letting me make my decision. So I knew my options before I made it to the agency, but they made it clear that if I did choose to parent the child, that they would be completely supportive of me and helping me with the resources and whatnot. So as far as the options counseling, um, that was more on my own and through family friends. Okay. Another, there are some in the adoption world who feel like pre-birth matching is coercive to expectant uh, women or expectant parents, that it would be better to uh, not allow expectant parents to know anything and and to make choices about uh, the adoptive parents. There are other people who feel that it's uh, it's fair, it's a, a fair thing for this big of a decision that expectant parents have the ability to have time on their side when making a, a, this decision. 
Thoughts on that, Katie? Do you feel that pre-birth matching has a coercive element where it puts too much pressure on the expectant parents once they meet the adoptive parents and, and get to know them to place? Or is it a, a good thing because it allows the uh, expectant parents to have time? Yeah, well, I'm not even sure I fully understand what people who don't agree with having the mom have have the ability to match pre-birth what they would do. Where would that child go? You know, I, 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 I really believe in early life stability for a newborn and this is a significant trauma. So if, if they then think this child should go from home to home to home before it, you know, goes into an adoptive family, then I, I would certainly not agree with that. And in my experience personally, and even professionally, just looking on again, I, I don't, have the inner thoughts of the women that I work with. But I do believe that there is a sense of like peace that comes when you've, you've selected that family. Now, certainly you still have the option to not choose adoption, but there is a, an element of, of, you know, relief. Okay. That this is moving towards, towards something. Um, so I definitely, I, I think there could be coercion involved in it if it's not done correctly, but I, I think it's a right for uh, a mom that they have that option. Laura, thoughts on that then? I'm going to echo their last um, last phrase there. I think it is a right for an a expectant mom and, and father to find, their, uh, find their, their match. I know for me and my, my story personally, I was still very fuzzy, um, experiencing a lot of anxiety up, up until I met my family, up until I, I called up my counselor and I told her, like, I want this family. It just I feel a connection with them. And having made that decision and made that choice to place with that specific family and having you know seen their profile and almost start to envision what this child's life is going to be like in their family and seeing their, their, their pictures and everything, I got the peace that I, I received from making that decision and shaking hands with them and seeing them face to face, I know they were no longer strangers. They were a family that I was entrusting my child to. And I cannot fathom at all having to make that decision post birth. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be just crazy. And again, what exactly would be the alternative to placing or the alternative, like to post birth choice, would my child be shopped around or not shopped around, but like handed off from foster home to foster home? That's kind of the reason why I went through with uh, adoption and placing him into the arms of a, a family I chose instead of trusting him to foster care, which there's some issues with foster care. Let's be honest. I wanted to make sure that my child had a home to go to that I knew that I was entrusting him to. And it was the last bit of control that I had over his life before I surrendered my rights to them, technically to the agency, but paperwork is paperwork. Um, I knew he was, who, who he was going to. And that gave me probably the, mo the most amount of peace out of the entire, my entire journey with the adoption. Okay. Kelsey, any, any thoughts from your experience? Yeah. Um, I hear this argument. I've heard this a couple times about how pre-birth matching is coercive. And it just, I just, I really do think like in an effort to make things sometimes like 
in people's minds an effort to make things more ethical for us. They're taking our choices away sometimes. And it's really frustrating to me to hear because a lot of times I hear these things and it's not even coming from birth moms about the choice that the birth mom makes. And so it's, I, I can't imagine going through my adoption process and being told like, you're going to have to endure this nine months all alone and you can't pick a family till after, or you can't get to know them until after. And that time I spent getting to know my son's family was so important. And you, it's, you're able to build this relationship. And if I chose to parent after I gave birth and then that was going to be okay. So I just can't, I just don't understand, I guess, how that plays into, you know, realistic terms. I, I understand that there are a lot of parts about adoption that can be extremely coercive. And I do believe that the conditions of a match could be coercive as far as who the parents are or how, what the agency acts like or how people conduct themselves in this relationship. But the concept alone of pre-birth matching, I don't believe is coercive. And I don't, I know there's a lot of women that have matched after or they've placed afterwards or their children have gone to um, like cradle care in between that time. And that's their choice. As long as that's that woman's choice, I have no qualms. But if it's, if it's not her choice and we're now forcing this woman to do extra things that she, you know, can't do and we can't we can't like paint with a broad brush and adoption so that's my that's my two cents <laughs> you know as long as we're talking about coercion uh, uh, another thing that uh, we hear it could be coercive is when uh, hopeful adoptive parents attend uh, either uh, doctor's appointments with the expectant mom or their presence at the hospital or even their presence at birth, uh, during the birth itself. Uh, so thoughts on that. Kelsey, we'll start with you this time. Okay. I think to reiterate my points from before is it's got to be her choice because I know women, it, I, for me personally, I can say I didn't want them in the room when I was giving birth. I didn't, I didn't really involve them too much in the hospital. They came on the second day I was in the hospital and I literally let them spend a couple hours with him while I caught up on sleep. And that was it because I wanted my full time with him, but I know women that wanted them in the hospital or I know women that didn't have literally anyone else in their life and they needed someone to be there. And they thought in their mind, who better to be there than these people that I've decided to place with. Still, I still believe that she should be able to change her mind, you know, but I, I just think that um, it's it's got to be her choice. She's got to be in, in in control in that situation. I think that the uh, what I hear is that it's presented to uh, uh, expectant moms that this is how it's supposed to be done. Mm-hmm. So it's not a it's not a full choice that she's making. It's a choice that that is presented as kind of a fait accompli that, that this is how it's done type of thing. I yeah. think, I mean, I'm, I'm not uh, maybe articulating it completely well, but I think that it's the, it's it, it sounds like in your case, you had total control and uh, wasn't presented that way. I think all the good, the decent, you know, um, 
agencies, attorneys are going to properly inform her of the choice of, and tell her that the hospital plan is 110% up to her. Obviously, there's a lot of corruption in adoption, and I have no doubt in my mind that places are telling women that this is how it's supposed to be done, and I definitely don't back that whatsoever. Okay, Laura, what was your experience, and, and do you feel like that attending doctor's appointments or you know, uh, OBGYN appointments and being present at the hospital is, is putting undue pressure? I think it should be entirely up to the mother. And I think that should be part of the the options counseling. Here's like, you're making an adoption plan that also includes your birth plan. That also includes your doctor's visit plan. Like keep the control in the, in the expectant mother's hands, I think is, is right. Um, and probably what we need, need to do. Um, for me, I did not want them in my doctor's office. Um, I was still getting freaked out by the sonogram um, or not the sonogram, but like the heartbeat monitor, whatever it's called. I still freaked out whenever I heard the heartbeat because, you know, that's still like it, it was just something I could not really understand. And I didn't want to have that that weird, you know, the expected mother. No, sorry. The hopeful adoptive mother was super excited about you know, hearing my heartbeat, hearing the heartbeat of her, her hopeful son. And I'm just like, there's a thing inside of me. Um, <laughs> so I did not want them in, in the room. Also, they, I didn't know them until about two months before I gave birth. I did not make my plan or didn't uh, commit to an agency until about two months before I gave birth. So I was pretty late to the game, um, according to another agency I went to. But as far as you know, the, the agency that I placed through, they were super hands-off as far as allowing me to make my own decisions. But I did want the mother in the room with me, um, in the birthing room. And it was the, probably one of the most beautiful moments um, of my story is having both me, the, the birth mother, and then her, the adopted mother, in the room. And I let her cut the cord. Um, just in my mind, that was a way for me to almost give her her child um, was to cut the cord from me, but that was my story, and it had a really surreal story as far as like all the little intricate details. Um, but I can definitely see how, especially the doctor's visits, that can be on the coercive side of things, especially that whole heartbeat thing. And and but it's entirely up to the expectant mother, and mm-hmm. I that is that should be the the normal practice. Is mm-hmm. how do you want your like how do you want to be hopeful adoptive parents to be involved with mm-hmm. your you know your okay. medical stuff okay uh katie any thoughts that are um uh, do you agree kind of with the uh, what's been set up to this point yes mm-hmm. okay and another question uh, that we got is what did you what were you looking for when you were choosing a uh, an, an adoptive family what were the factors that, and I, I asked this knowing full well that it is so individual, but what were factors that were important to you when making this choice? Katie, let's start with you. Um, you know, I struggle maybe answering this because um, it's kind of been a touchy subject for me through the years because um, I don't really feel like I was provided with that many options. How many, how many families did you choose from? Three or four, maybe. Okay. So, I, yeah, I struggle because um, that that this 
I just don't think I was provided with enough. I don't agree with sending people a hundred, but I don't agree with the practice of limiting the number of options to that professional, like that, that attorney's pot of families or that agency's pot of families. I think that's a terrible practice um, that goes on daily in this industry. Okay. Kelsey, some thoughts on that. What I looked for in a family, I looked for something that was familiar. I looked for something that was similar to the way that I grew up. I looked for financial stability and emotional stability and someone that was, I don't know, that just was like, kind of felt like my personality that we would get along. And I mean, I think that's what I found. Definitely. And Laura, what were you looking for? Primarily a Georgia family who's looking for an open adoption. And then from that, had about five families to choose from. And what I, the family I went with, they just seemed to have the most open personalities as far as what their interests were. They weren't super like hyper-focused and passionate about one thing. They just had a, just a general variety of interests and they love to travel, which is something that I hoped for my child or future children is that we could be in a place where we can travel and explore different cultures and whatnot. And that family seemed to have that, you know, all of that. And then to echo what Kelsey said, the emotional stability and the financial stability that I could not provide. Um, and my family, it was all check marks. In that. <laughs> Good. All right. Let me pause for a moment and remind people that this show is underwritten by the Jockey Bean Family Foundation, and their mission is post-adoption support. And uh, one of the ways that Jockey Bean Family does that is through their backpack program. It is for agencies to apply. It is free for the agency and free for the families. If the agency applies, that all of their newly adopted families get a backpack with the child's initials embroidered and then inside the backpack is a uh, bear a little stuffed plush bear and a blanket and a tote bag full of uh, parenting resources for the parents so if you're an agency or if you're a parent and you would like your agency to participate let them know about this and they go to the website jockeybeingfamily.com and click on the backpack program and it's super easy to sign up and all of your families will will have access to this Okay, so another topic that uh, it seems like all the topics I'm raising are, you know, (laughs) controversial topics, but that's what all the questions came in on. So when adoptive parents fundraise to pay for adoption, let's be honest, adoption is not inexpensive. And parents, many parents uh, have the, the, the money to raise a child, but not the, you know, cash in the bank to necessarily pay for the adoption out of hand. So what we see more now is adoption fundraising, where parents do any number of things, anywhere from a GoFundMe or from, uh, you know, yard sales or, you know, uh, spaghetti suppers at church, things like that, to raise money to help pay for the adoption. Well, this brings to mind about how uh, expectant parents would feel about this because, in fact, you know, oftentimes uh, financial issues are a motivating factor for placing. So let me ask, what are your thoughts about uh, adoptive parents fundraising to pay for an adoption? Laura? Um, I've, I've seen some stuff on this on Instagram, um, people going back and forth. I 
don't see an issue with it. It it takes a village to raise a child, and if they're going if they're going to adopt and make answer the call to adopt, um, it, it takes a village to adopt a child and, and raise it. And so I don't see an issue to that. Yeah, I one of the reasons I placed was I did not have a financial support um, personally to raise the child. I mean, I'm still trying to figure out what career I want to do and. Um, definitely have not made enough in the past three years to barely support myself. So um, I can understand that <laughs> correlation where, well, if it, an expectant mother is placing because of financial difficulties and she hears the adopted parents are fundraising, you know, what's yeah. that, what's that like, yeah. come, like, what does she think about that? Uh, I wouldn't have the money to raise them anyway. And if they have the money to raise, but not to, a, you know, you adopt and they need a little extra help from their village. Why not? Like, why is that an issue in my, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Katie, what are your thoughts? Um, I am conflicted on it. Um, I think if they, if they f- provided her with the full information, then go right ahead. Um, but I doubt that some of them would be, comfortable enough sharing how much they raised with that mom that is asking them, you know, to place their child with them. So I, I think if they were fully honest about what they raised, then great. Um, and she's all on board with that, then, then cool. But I think if people are out there raising $20,000, then as an expectant mom, I'd be like, wait, why, why do you need $20,000? And why is this costing 20,000 or 30 or 40 or whatever that number is? And if you, you know, if you needed that, are you going to be able to provide for my child? Um, so I think if it was, if the information was shared, then I am cool with it. Okay. Kelsey thoughts. Um, yeah, I actually wrote, um, an article on this like earlier this year. Um, and I took a couple surveys from people on, you know, what their thoughts were. And, um, at the end of it, I kind of concluded with, if you're not feeling comfortable with the way that you're fundraising as adoptive parents, and if you, if what you're doing is making you feel kind of icky, then it's time to like revisit that matter. And if you feel like you couldn't um, tell your birth mom or your, you're not your birth mom, but the expected mom, if you feel like you couldn't disclose with her anything about the fundraising, or if you feel like you would have to keep it a secret um, from the, the child one day, then maybe revisit. I do think that the main issue in this is not the fundraising, but the, but the cost of adoption in general. I mean, people are paying $40,000, plus um, in a lot of situations with facilitators and some attorneys are charging that much. It's, it's absurd. Um, and so I think that's definitely the main issue. A lot of uh, women have said, you know, well, if you're, if you're spending all this money, you know, why couldn't you just give it to the expectant mom? And, and that's not the point. But it is something to think about. A lot of times financial hardship is the top reason that a woman chooses to place her child. And, you know, this lack of financial financial stability combined with this moment of single motherhood is, is kind of heavy. So I, I think there's, there's a, 
there's definitely ways to fundraise that are, um, I guess, humble. And uh, I, I, what I typically think is a little sketchy is when I see them fundraising for the entire amount. The entire amount is like 50 plus. That's troubling to me. I, I kind of, as an adoption professional now, I, I basically, I want to see that you're committing to tightening your budget since you've decided to adopt. And I want to see that, you know, you're fundraising in an appropriate way. I've seen on Instagram, some people fundraise by like doing a giveaway and like making it really, it's just, I don't desensitize the process when you're fundraising. I think that's, Okay. Interesting. I didn't realize you had written an article. Um, If you'll send me the link, I will include it with the uh, show notes. Okay. Um, Another topic that uh, we get uh, questions for uh, is uh, birth, uh, not birth parents, uh, adoptive parents, adoptive moms who uh, want to induce lactation so that they can nurse their adopted child. Let me uh, be honest up front that it is not always, in fact, usually you're not able to produce enough breast milk to fully support the child. So oftentimes you are doing, you're also having to supplement um, through formula. But it uh, for some adoptive parents, uh, adoptive moms, it gives them an added sense of, of, of bonding or whatever. So, and, and they would want to try it and they want to do it. So I'd like to hear, and then, but the, the counter argument is that, so how do birth parents feel about this? So Katie, let me start with you. Uh, how would you feel uh, about, uh, ad- how, how do you feel about an adoptive moms uh, inducing lactation or trying to induce lactation so that they can breastfeed? Yeah, so I've dealt with this um, a number of times as a professional working, you know, um, kind of in the agency setting with families and the expectant parents. And I think I kind of have a theme, but my theme is always just honesty and, you know, giving that information. So if a ma and a prospective adoptive mom wants to do this, then I think she, in that time where you're kind of meeting or getting to know that um, expectant parent, she should be forthright with that information. So she has the opportunity to explain how she's come to this decision, why she wants to do this. And and then that allows that expectant mom to have the time to process that information and decide if she's comfortable with that. So I, I have a pro. I've had a problem professionally when it's been this secret. We're telling you as the professional, but we don't want her to know. Well, that that's been really uh, troubling for me because that's that's not okay. Why if you're leaving, if you're keeping this kind of information secret from her, what else are you going to keep from her over the years? A secret. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, well, if you have a theme of honesty, it's not a bad theme to have. So just saying, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just throwing Thank it you. out there. Uh, Kelsey, uh, what are your thoughts on uh, adoptive breastfeeding? As an adoption professional, I'm like completely on board with Katie as a birth mom. I'm just going to be blunt. I think it's so weird. And I, (laughs) (laughs) it's so bizarre in my birth mom mind. I've seen this discussion across a couple like Facebook groups for birth moms. And it's typically the same theme across of opinion. 
um, in response to that. I, I just, I don't understand it and I've tried to, and I just don't think that I ever will. Um, but I, I do agree. It's not my choice at the same time. So if that does arise in my professional work, that's the way definitely I agree with Katie and that's the way we handle it. So. Yeah. But yeah, but but your blunt reaction as a birth mom is, ew, huh? I hear about it. I'm just like, I'm just gonna turn my phone off. Laura, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> your thoughts on adoptive uh, moms breastfeeding? I don't have adoption professional experience here, so I'm just of the birth mom perspective, and I agree with Kelsey. That's weird, and I don't really want to know about it. Um, <laughs> If you want to induce lactation and try and breastfeed the child, go for it. Uh, cool, but I don't need to know. That's your that's your world, dude. <laughs> yeah, and I think this is Katie again. I think the only, I mean, I've only become okay with it because I now parent three children and I did nurse them. But prior to parenting a child, I would have felt like. Kelsey and Laura, it, it would have been weird. Um, so that's why I think you as the adoptive mother have to be honest and provide some, some reasoning why, and kind of not education, like don't preach to her, but what, what does this mean for you? What is this doing for you? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Um, when you were, when, oh, and Katie, this may be less relevant to you, because I'm not sure openness was openness then was the fact that there was contact information being shared, but, uh, how was, uh, so this is probably more for the, the Kelsey and Laura who have more recently placed, how was openness described to you? And, and, and is the reality, has that, is the reality worked out to be how it was described or did they paint uh, did they paint the picture with you know and, and and all roses and unicorns and things like that and 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 the reality is is has not worked out to be that way laura we'll start with you so my agency was really good about um describing the their different levels of um openness as far as their definitions go so they described um closed is closed there's no contact semi is updates, um, regular updates, and they kind of describe the schedule of those, you know, lessening by the time they get to uh, 13. And then once they turn 13, it's their decision whether they want to keep, continue updates. And then complete open and open adoption had that same update schedule as the semi, but it also included contact with the family. And that's obviously the one I chose. The paperwork described one visit a year as their minimum open requirement. And uh, for, adopt, for their adoptive families, and I thought I was going out on a limb and asking for, for two this year, and then they blew my mind and said every other month. So for me, my my expectations and my reality, my expectations have far been um, overachieved, I should say, and I'm grateful for it. However, that I know that, that is not the case across the board. I have heard from several of my now friends um, as I've grown into the I uh, found my, my people in the birth mom community here in Georgia, which is so exciting. But as I've, um, as I've talked with them, unfortunately, they will have, you know, an, an understanding of an openness and they've placed a few years ago too. And, um, and yet their families have just completely 
dropped the ball and not and not completed their end of the open open adoption. And unfortunately, they just go years without hearing anything or any updates. So I am fortunate that my uh, fortunate in saying this, but it breaks my heart. Well, uh, at the same time, that my open adoption. Uh, my expectations and my reality are unfortunately an outlier out there. You know, and that uh, raises a, an interesting issue. And and so I'll, I'll point this to you, Kelsey. Were you aware that it would be very hard to, I don't even know if, if there was a specific contract, a, a, a post-adoption uh, openness contract, but even if there was, were you aware that you would probably have a very hard time enforcing it? Was that something that was that you felt like you, you understood that you it was a, um, um, a handshake type of agreement, not necessarily one you could enforce? We didn't have post-adoption contact agreements in Indiana. Um, they're not allowed. Um, and I was aware that like that this was all by you know, this informal, you know, agreement. Agreement isn't even the proper word because it wasn't, you know, but it wasn't enforceable. I knew that. They told me that. And the, I guess with the previous question too, is when I went into this, I said I wanted an open adoption and the attorney gave me, you know, the, the stack of profiles to look through and when I met this family and whatever I told, or when I talked to them on the phone, I told them that, you know, I wanted open adoption. And my understanding of an open adoption was not with visits. It was just pictures and letters because that's what the attorney informed me. And when they brought up visits, I told the attorney and the attorney was like, well, you might have to pick a new family then if you want visits. Cause that's just, cause they, that felt like I had asked for too much. Even though they brought it up. Yeah. Wow. Bizarre. But yeah, but the attorney definitely made me feel like I had asked for the moon and the stars by asking for visits. Or any contact. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So Katie, let's talk with you some about the, uh, again, I, uh, not from your personal experience, but having as a social worker and working in adoption, do you feel like that uh, expectant parents understand that that the the as after the adoption, the uh, the control resides even in my opinion, even when there are when, even when there is a post adoption agreement that the the the, uh, the power resides with the adoptive families. Do you think that uh, that agencies do a decent job of explaining that to expectant parents when they're making these choices? So are you talking about the contact agreements or like their relinquishment or consent documents? Like the oh, No, contact agreements. The others okay. are, uh, thank you for making that clarification. No, um, not uh, relinquishment of parental rights. That is, uh, that's a legal document okay. that is absolutely enforceable. I'm talking about post-adoption contact openness agreements. So I think it really varies on the professional that is drafting that for the um for the birth parents. In California, we do have what are called, you know, they are enforceable contact agreements. Of course, they would never overturn the adoption, and I, but they are enforceable and, you know, can result in mediation or even court. Um, yeah, but it's hard. It's, it, yes, you're correct. But it's, 
it's going to be up. And, and I haven't looked at the case law in California. And it's possible that you're right, that a judge would force uh, adoptive parents. But it, all an adoptive parent has to say, it seems to me, is that it's not in their child's best interest. And ultimately, that's the standard that we use for judging. So I don't know. You would, you're in California and probably know more. So, uh, Well, I do know that there's more and more cases going to court and even potentially like, I don't know if they do trial. I, I would have to ask the attorneys that I know that are, you know, working on these. But I think that it really depends on that uh, attorney that sat and created that document with um, the birth parent. I know that there's a lot of birth parents that think that their contact agreements were filed in court and they never were. Um, and so those are, you can't even do anything about that. So I, I do think there was, there's no standard like, like proper care in this. It, it really depends on who that person got connected to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so that's, it's probably uh, across the board and we hope that, so that leads us directly into the the question about uh, ethics and and ethical adoption practices that both expectant parents as well as adoptive parents uh, are aware of when they're choosing adoption professionals, be they an adoption agency or an adoption attorney. Katie, let's start with you then. What are some hallmarks of an ethical agency or attorney that both parent, uh, both sets of parents, uh, adoptive and birth or, or expectant, um, should look for in, uh, when they're choosing? Um, I, For me, first and foremost, that an ethical adoption professional believes in providing the expectant parent with her own representation, her own legal representation. Um, it's not required in every state, but it should I think it should be a standard of practice that she has her own attorney. This is, you know, technically contract law. And yet in any other contract in, in a legal setting, both parties would be provided with their own attorney. And that does not happen in adoption. In fact, expectant parents think that the attorney that they got connected to is their attorney and they really are not. They're the adoptive parents attorney. Um, so I, that's first and foremost for me. Yeah. Okay. Laura, things that expectant and adoptive parents, because of course we want both sides to be looking for ethical uh, ethical professionals to guide them. So what are some things that they should look at, look for? I would agree with the attorney um, that the expectant mother is provided an attorney if she'd like one to represent her, her interests. Um, I, I agree it is contract law, so there's two sides of the party here. Uh, two parties to the to the contracts that both need equal and adequate representation. As far as for me, I I'm very detail oriented. So when I made my decision, I looked up three different agencies to inter- basically interview. As far as like who do I want to place through, and the first one I went to very quickly off the bat, uh, she saw my my belly was seven seven months long, and she um. In the first 15-minute meeting, and the only other contact I had with her was maybe a five-minute conversation to set up this meeting, um, she presented me with, with three or four different profiles and almost expected me to make a decision as far as what family I was going to place, uh, place my child into. And I felt extremely pressured and extremely awkward with it all. It's like it, she did not know me. She did not know my story other than the maybe total 
20 minutes if she's on me. So any kind of rush to make a decision, no matter how far along the mother is, that makes me extremely uncomfortable. And um, as far as my coaching for uh, expectant mothers out there, make sure that when you walk in, that you feel comfortable and confident in their ability um, to hear you out and uh, and heed your word and respect your word um, and that they respect you and your story. And um, that would be for the birth mother side uh, or the expectant mother side, I should say. And then on the um, expectant, um, sorry, the adoptive family side, that they understand where their funds are going. Um, it is a very expensive process, and they need to make sure that um, you know, they they have the procedure in place. So when the child is born, they need to make sure that the agency knows to put the child on Medicare uh, or Medi- Medicaid, whichever it is. I can't keep them straight. But uh, okay, Medicaid, and then that there's a procedure in place and a policy in place for them to backdate the insurance and everything like that. That they have that sec the the post birth um, procedure down to a T, and that they can walk them through every step of the way before there's even a birth, because that was an issue with um, with my with my adoption uh, for. And unfortunately, however, I will say that my agency has addressed all those issues and everything is good. But when going through it, yeah. that was really uncomfortable and they felt extremely uncomfortable in that whole situation. And nobody is such a gut-wrenching decision to place and then such a huge decision to adopt that the ever, all the parties should feel comfortable and confident in the ability of the agency. Mm-hmm. Okay. Kelsey, what would you look for with a, for ethics and ethical uh, adoption professional, be it an attorney or a, uh, and an agency? I think the most important thing across the board is that they need to be doing more than the bare minimum. And what I mean when I say that is uh, we set these new standards like every day for these ethical agencies. Ethical is like this buzzword in adoption now. Everybody wants to seem ethical because that's what adoptive parents are looking for in an agency. So agencies will list like, oh, we offer post-placement support on their website. And then you get into it and you find out they really don't, or they offer three counseling sessions and that's it. So I post-placement support mm-hmm. is huge. It needs to be offered and it needs to be offered several times mm-hmm. pre and post-placement. Yeah. Um, and then and that can look like support groups. It can look like um, counseling. And if they don't have the resources to do it in office, then they should for sure be sending it out, send out referrals to places. Um, I Separate legal representation is huge for me, but we need more than the bare minimum in that we need more than just their buddy attorney who is just going to um, you know, explain the terms in favor of the adoptive parent's attorney. And we need an attorney that's working for her. That's, that is filling the space of a real attorney, just like in any other mm-hmm. situation. I, I mean, there's other little things, but those, to me, those are the main things. Um, and then cost, cost, I really don't want to ever see something more than 
more than 45,000. Like if there's medical issues, but like a standard adoption, and I'm being generous with the 45,000 because ideally I want it a lot, lot lower, mm-hmm. but I don't, I don't want to see those at all. I'm so thankful that you talked about, well, all of them, all of your points, but the um, post-adoption counseling and, and not just for the first month after the, after the birth, uh, it's a lifetime decision. And it's so important that the adoption professional community, the adoption industry realizes that birth parents uh, need to have options for counseling long into the adoption because we certainly know that feelings about adoption change and and they come and they go. I mean, your needs come and they go. So anyway, such a good point. Let me remind people that this show is brought to you not only through our underwriters, but also through our partners. And our partner agencies are those that believe in our mission of providing unbiased, accurate information pre and post adoption. Uh, and they do more than just you know give lip service to it. They actually put their money behind it. And, and that means supporting us and that their support allows us to bring you this show. Some of our wonderful partners include Adoptions from the Heart. They have built over 6,000 families since 1985 through domestic infant adoption. They work with families across the U.S., but they're licensed in uh, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, Delaware, Virginia, and Connecticut. And we also have Vista Del Mar. They are a licensed nonprofit adoption agency with over 65 years of experience helping to create families. They offer home study only services, but they also offer full service infant adoption, international adoption, and foster to adopt programs. I want to thank you so much uh, for the three birth moms that we've had with us today, Kelsey Vandervliet, uh, Katie Monroe, and Laura Blanco. I have truly appreciated your time and your wisdom uh, and your patience in, in answering what, uh, what may seem like uh, redundant questions to you or even silly questions, but these are questions that adoptive parents and adoption professionals uh, should be asking and adoptive parents are asking. So thank you so much for uh, your time and your willingness to, to share. Let me mention that the views expressed in this show are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family, our partners, or our underwriters. Also, keep in mind that the information is general advice to understand how it applies to your specific situation. You need to work with your adoption professional. Thanks for joining us today, and I will see you next week. <laughs>